0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Now today we're going to be talking with a repeat guest, somebody who's been on the show before, who I super admire. I think he's a fantastic thinker, very introspective, really knows how to kind of put his ideas out there, both written and verbally in a way that is really compelling, and just an all-around good guy. His name is Sunil Gupta, and he's going to be talking about his new book. It is called Everyday Dharma. Now, his last book was called Backable, and that was really about how to get people to believe in your ideas. This new book, it's a little more introspective, but still highly practical, and I think something that Every entrepreneurial thinker, entrepreneur, aspiring entrepreneur, business person, human being should be thinking about. Now, the story here is that after losing touch with his dharma, and we'll define dharma in a little bit with Sunil, Sunil went on a journey to find it again. As the founding CEO of Rise, which he sold to One Medical and Amazon, and a visiting scholar at Harvard Medical School, Sunil travels the world deconstructing how extraordinary performers overcome their most difficult moments. So this is a book that is really about figuring out like what is it that we're here for and why we're doing what we're doing, which I think is always a healthy thing to think about. So you're gonna love the interview; it's a really good one, and I'm excited to share it with you. Now, in terms of the small ask this week, you know, I have a little small ask, which is pretty simple: give me ideas about things you would love to see on Fo Mondays. You can se- you can send me a note on Instagram at Patrick J McGinnis. You can send me a tweet at PJ McGinnis. You can send me an email at let's connect at I will respond. I always do. Maybe not in the same hour because, you know, I'm my Dharma tells me not to. But uh, I will respond and I love hearing from you. So ideas, please, always welcome. What would serve you? What would serve you? What do you need? What advice do you need? What things do you want to talk about? What is interesting to you? I just always want new ideas. You know, I can't come up with everything myself. All right. <laughs> now, on to the interview. As you know, I like to start every interview with the same question, and the question is this, what's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are
1: today? Patrick, it's good to be back. Formative decision for me is deciding to become a writer, um, to start writing again. And for me, um, it was something I always loved to do. It did not fit my career in any shape or form. I was a tech entrepreneur. I was uh, running a startup. Um, but I felt like writing for me was therapy. I needed to sit down every morning and be in front of a blank page and just get the mess that was inside my head out on paper. And, all that, all that writing over the course of years eventually turned into blog posts, uh, turned into articles and eventually turned into books. And it never would have happened had I not just like literally put my butt in the seat, uh, each morning, even for a few minutes each day and just wrote.
0: Yeah. And for folks that are listening who want to do that, I mean, the thing is it doesn't have to be three hours a day. It can be I remember I started writing when I started working on the stuff for my first book. I was in working in in private equity. I'd be in a hotel room in like Beijing, jet lagged. Wake up at six in the morning, and I would write for thirty minutes, and then you sort of build that, you know, that sort of cadence, and you keep going. And so obviously, it's paid off because you have a new book out. It's called Everyday Dharma, and it is your last book. We had you on when you came on the show, and I super enjoyed it. And I'm excited for this book because. I, You know, it's interesting, like for some reason, the word ancient wisdom comes to my mind and it feels like in this kind of modern age, and crazy time that we live in, like it's people have been seeking wisdom for ages. And it, <laughs> that's why I call it ancient wisdom. But, you know, it's like it's all there. You just have to go and find it and make it relevant to the world in which we live, which is exactly what you're doing here. Hmm. So let's talk about I mean, the book is called Every Day Dharma. I actually didn't know the definition of the term, and I still don't. And so I imagine other, you know, it's like a word we throw around. What does it mean, dharma?
1: Yeah, I mean, your dharma is your inner calling. Mm -hmm. Uh, My grandfather called it your essence. And, you know, when you're expressing that essence, you come alive. You feel creative, you feel energized, you feel fulfilled. And when you're not, you can feel really depleted. You can feel lost. And the question is, how do we find our dharma but sometimes even more importantly like how do we live our dharma when we have bills to pay we have schedules to keep we have people to take care of the point of the book was to go directly into those struggles you know for example in chapter one i tell the story of a working mom named mila and she was a project manager inside a really big company but she really wanted to be a teacher like that was her thing. But she didn't have the financial flexibility to leave her job. She had people who relied on her, they relied on her salary, on her health insurance. And so like a lot of us, I think today she felt trapped in a career that really didn't feel like her own. It was paying the bills, but it was more of a paycheck than it was a passion. Um, Then a mentor asked Mila, they were having coffee and she asked Mila a very simple, but I think powerful question, which is, What is it specifically about teaching that captivates you? And really by searching deep into that question, what Mila realized is that underneath the title of teacher was that she really loved to help people grow. Ultimately, that was like her essence. And yes, teaching was one way to express that essence, but there are many others, Right, she could she could you know make a lateral shift into HR. She could really step into a managerial role and start to coach others. What she ended up doing was joining the training team inside her company. And when she did that, she became a rising star. And she went from dreading her job to being happy to being energized. Everybody around her noticed, not just her team, but her husband and her kids. Um, you know, she was living her dharma, and she was finding joy through her work. And I think the thing about it is that she didn't have to leave her company. She didn't have to take a big risk in order to make it happen. The point of Dharma is that sometimes we feel like transformation has to happen through abandoning the things that are already in our lives when sometimes it's very much within our reach where we are
0: right now. All right, I'm going to try to reframe that as because as you were talking, I was having a lot of thoughts, which is always good. This is a sign. This is a sign that you're on to something. To me, it's about a lot of times when we're looking for the answer. Like a lot of people are like unhappy with their career, for example. And so they're focused on the output element. It's like, well, I need to change jobs. You're driving us to think about the input. What is the root, not the root cause as it were, but like what is the root driver of what we want to do? Yeah. What is the essence of that, as you said? And then, you know, so it's not about I have to be this job or do this thing it's i have to tap into this thing that is central to what i want to be and express it not just in a job but throughout my life in many different ways is that correct
1: i think it's it's not only correct i, I see it as in a lot of ways so related to what this show is all about right and all your work on with fomo is all about because for me as somebody who's experienced so much fomo in my life <laughs> What I sort of realized is that that a lot of it was about external FOMO, right? I want that car, I want that level of wealth, I want to have a house that's like that person's. I think the thing that I began to realize, which I think many of us do, is that then you start to kind of get closer to that thing, right? Mm-hmm. You start to hit some goals, you start to accumulate some wealth. And the expectation then is, well, that's gonna make me feel better internally. And it never really does. I mean, it can temporarily, but you know, Dr. Tal Ben Shahar at Harvard University has this sort of he coined the term the arrival fallacy. And the arrival fallacy is this this idea that we're gonna reach this moment where we have accumulated enough. And when we cross that threshold, we're gonna feel completely fulfilled on the inside. I think our generation, like you and me, Patrick, we're about the same age. I feel like we are very susceptible to the arrival fallacy. But I think everybody I talk to is sort of at least coming to this point in time now, sort of in quote unquote, middle age, where we're kind of realizing this is not quite real. The formula isn't quite working the way we thought it was going to, and something is missing. The good news, I think, is that generations are realizing it earlier and earlier. Like, I think Gen Z gets a a tough rap sometimes, but I think ultimately they're asking the questions that I think
0: many of us wish we would have asked early on. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos Fomosapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel I think our generation was trained in this way because we grew up in the 80s. And wow. I don't know about you. I loved family ties. I actually dressed like my Mike- <laughs> Alex P. I can, why does that not surprise me? Yeah, At least. <laughs> It was my Halloween costume for many years. <laughs> but I just rewatched this movie, The Secret of My Success, which is such a and that movie, by the way, holds up. It's a fantastic movie. But it is it's selling this dream of a, a sort of an acquisition acquisitive power as happiness and of, you know, sort of the, you know, very tied into like the American, you know, sort of dream of, of, you, you know, acquiring things. And we all know, like, if you read Death of a Salesman, uh, which I wrote a report about it in high school called basically it's like the American dream is a lie. I was quite, an, quite a, like a, for 11th grader, kind of an intense topic, but yeah. it is the mythology of America. But you're right. Like, where are we today? the vast majority of people feel completely disconnected from yeah. what their
1: dreams are and we've been, you know and every metric ultimately that we have been trying to drive as a society has has driven in the direction that we intended right our gdp has never been higher and yes there are ups and downs but we've been we've been continuously growing you know we we but i, I think that you know there, there's an argument to be made that happiness satisfaction has drifted in the opposite direction you know and i think that it's it's a huge sort of ask to say hey society needs to change but i think that what we can do is we can take a, an internal look and say how do we want to sort of respond to that how do we want to drive our own sort of metrics and i think ultimately that's that's what that's what this book is 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 all about
0: it's interesting because as i think about this i, I am aligned and i think this is to me this is the work of living right this is and and succeeding and 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 business people need to do this as much as you know everybody else but i could see some people saying you know, to take, like, the devil advocate. You yeah. Know, there's, everybody's a devil's advocate, even on stuff like this. It's like, oh, like, what a high-class problem you have. Like, you know, my, our grandparents, you know, they were just trying to put food on the table, and they, you know, they had it so hard. And nowadays, you know, we have, you know, y- y- it's like it's such a high-class problem when people are suffering out there. How would you sort of shut that down?
1: There was a... um you know, I think Viktor Frankl's work with man search for meaning sort of spoke directly to the way that I think our grandpa, our grandparents, sort of lived, mm. especially those who were sort of born and raised in the United States and lived in the United States. My parents, my grandparents were were in India, you know. And but but the the sort of the premise was that if you look at that generation, baby boomers, uh, in particular, the idea was that you know they they would be able to sort of buy meaning right if you made enough money then you'd be able to create meaning out of your life and that was very much sort of the accepted way of life but what frankel i think argued in his book is that things were changing and they were changing dramatically in the 1970s and 80s as you started the survey people who were coming out of college they were saying that like we care about meaning a lot more than, they, than we care about money now here's the critical thing that we need to keep in mind it wasn't saying that they didn't care about money right yeah. and oftentimes when we have this argument or you know and I and I welcome sort of these devil's advocate conversations because I think they're super interesting which is like what are you saying are you saying money doesn't matter absolutely not that's that's not the, that's not the thing and i think that there has actually been maybe too much of i think maybe the shaming of the idea of ambition or shaming of the idea of material possessions because the reality is like we, we desire these things, we want these things, and I don't think that there's any shame in that. I think the question that each of us has to ask ourselves and be truthful about is, as you have started to accumulate these things, as you have started to get more of that, has that given you the intended result internally? Right? Because if it hasn't, then there's a really strong argument to be made that maybe the path that you are taking right now or the way you're approaching that path isn't actually working. It's not going to get you to that moment that you think that it's going to get you to. And what I I think the the the, the sort of thrust of this book is really about making sure that we have that self inquiry before we get to the moment where I think we find far too many people in when they're in their seventies and eighties and they're looking back in their lives and saying, "Gosh, I just ha- I just wish I would have I just wish I would have approached it in a, in a fundamentally different way." The thing that's really interesting to me, Patrick, is like. I think when I say approach it in a different way, it doesn't all of a sudden mean that you need to blow up your life. It doesn't mean you need to leave your job. It doesn't mean any of those things. You know, I think the the beauty of some of the stories inside the book is that oftentimes people who were able to find their dharma didn't do any of that at all. They just continued down the path they were on. But the way they showed up was different. There's a story of a nurse named Karen in the book who really wanted to be a writer when she was in high school. She won prizes, she 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 was sort of destined to be like a novelist. But when it came time to fill out her college application, her parents were like, screw that. That's not gonna be a way for you to make money, right? And you're gonna go do something that's much more practical. And so she chose nursing. And because she was just like a hard worker, she became a really sort of reputable nurse inside the hospital to the point where she got promoted to the head of the unit. Now, the thing about the head of the unit inside a hospital is you end up doing a lot more paperwork, right? And everybody hates paperwork inside the hospital. But Karen saw this paperwork as an opportunity to express herself as a writer. So instead of like filling out all the clinical details and hitting print the way her predecessor did, she would actually take her time. She'd sit in the break room at the hospital and she would write these like poetic stories about the patient, like who they were, who did they love, what did they enjoy doing at home? And she would put all this down. And what it did is it started to create these sort of little stories that were passed around the hospital from doctors to nurses to, to other members of the hospital staff to kind of remind them of the humanity of their work. Now, she didn't leave her job. She continued being a nurse for for quite a while, but she was able to bring her essence as a writer to that job.
0: That is a wonderful story. And that is, see, this is the thing. It kind of reminds me when I was in private equity, I would write my investment memos. People were like, that was a page turner. Your your memo about the flower farm was so exciting, right? And it's like, because I didn't I didn't divorce myself from my passion it actually made me a better writer. It served me later on, but this is, I think it's the essence of what you're talking about is that it's not a binary choice. It's not like I had so many people think I've got to work forever. Then I'll retire and I'll be able to do the things I want to yeah. do. Like the story about the fish, the guy fishing, you know, the investment banker goes to <laughs> vacation. He sees the guy fishing. He wish he was doing that all day. And the guy's like, you could do that. Right. Yeah. It doesn't have to be. And so like that way of living or that model is outdated and in fact you can integrate these things into your life. This is so central to the way I think about things too. It's not an all or nothing choice. You can still make money. You don't have to become an aesthetic and like travel the world in in robes or something to do this stuff. Now, I wanna talk about some of the concepts in the book because what's so cool about this is you're identifying, again, it's like ancient wisdom, stuff that's been around for a really long time that, you know, it's like, it works, you know, it's sort of like acupuncture, right? It's like, it works. A lot of people look at it and they're like, that's too weird for me, But if you do it, you're like, well, it's been used for thousands of years. Like there's a reason or meditation. Talk about some of the concepts that you identified and give us a pathway to integrating some of those into our lives.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I love what I love about Dharma is that it's kind of been this hidden sort of philosophy that's been passed down from East to West, from generation to generation, you know, ancient to modern. When I thought of Dharma as an Indian kid living up living in the United States, I would immediately think of Mahatma Gandhi, right? Who does make an appearance in the book. But what I love learning is how Dharma was this practice that was adopted uh, by people like you know Jimi Hendrix, by people like Hank Aaron, by people like Mah- Martin Luther King, you know, and and you know all these sort of figures that were able to sort of take the practices of Dharma and put it into sort of a practical moment, a practical challenge one of the things, one of my favorite chapters in the book, the chapter that I think about the most is a chapter called Upeka. And Upeka is the art of finding comfort in the discomfort. And the way that I begin sort of the chapter is this, this well-told ancient tale of the prickly porcupine. And the prickly porcupine is sort of the, 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 the story of, you know, a den of porcupines that are huddled together for warmth, right? Because it's very, very cold outside, but because they're huddled so closely together, they're needling one another. They're pricking one another, right? And so eventually, you know, some of the porcupines decide to disband and they go out into the cold and they realize like, I can't live out here. So I need to go back into the den and I need to deal with the pokes. I need to deal with the little, the little irritations. And what I love about that story is it's so indicative of our life today. Like how many times have I wanted to say, screw it all, I'm going to just kind of isolate myself. I'm tired of dealing with people. I'm tired of dealing with frustration. I'm tired of dealing with rejection. But the reality is that it is part of the game. And instead of trying to run away from the discomfort, you have to find ways to find comfort in the discomfort. One of the principles behind UPeka, is this idea of equanimity, equanimity. And about one out of every two people I talk to sort of understand like what equanimity is. I didn't. But what equanimity is, is this ability really to find space, right? It's to find space in between being triggered and the way that you respond to that. Uh, Viktor Frankl, again, his his sort of big thing that he learned uh, during the Holocaust, uh, being a Holocaust survivor, is that in between impulse and response, There is a space and inside that space lies our freedom, right? And it sounds simple, but the thing is that, you know, if you don't have space between the minor irritations, between somebody who cuts you off on the road, somebody who kind of gives you an offhanded comment during a meeting or your kids screaming in the background, if you don't have space between that moment where you feel like reacting and the moment that you actually react, you might be somebody who is super evolved. You might have plenty of tools in your hand. You might have all these sort of things that you've learned. But if you don't have that space, then you don't have any room to actually deploy any of that. So in some ways, that little moment that we have to ourselves before we actually respond to a tricky situation or an uncomfortable moment is in a lot of ways everything. It is the foundation by which everything else that we've learned in our lives stands.
0: FOMO. FOMO. You know, Sunil, you come on my show and you talk to me about Viktor Frankl and it just makes me like it even more because (laughs) when people talk about Viktor Frankl and they come on, because it happens like once every once in a while, it just makes me happy because that was a book that I read in March of 2020. Hmm. And I always liken that book, Man's Search for Meaning, which I couldn't believe that I hadn't heard of it or read it. I mean, what somehow that should be required reading in every high school in America, but I hadn't. And I remember- it's a book that you you need to read a page or two at a time. It took me like a month to get through it, even though it's like 104 pages. Because it is so it is so rich. It's like yeah. eating cheese or something. But you're so right. And it, it is, this is the, if you can cultivate equanimity, which, by the way, it's a practice. You have to practice at it. Your ability to freak out crashes to, you know, it's sort of asymptotic to zero. Let's talk about building equanimity because it sounds like such a good place to be, but it's not, you don't just decide to do it. How, how do you recommend people do that? So, I mean,
1: the, the, one of the stories in the book is about Hank Aaron and, you know, Hank Aaron, like has always been an inspiring figure to me. And it wasn't until I did a really deep dive on Hank Aaron and his Dharma that I was like, holy shit. I mean, you know, Hank Aaron was within, you know, a a season of, of breaking Babe Root's record and Up until that point in time, he was just kind of like another player in the league. He was really good. People paid some attention to him. But only when he came close to breaking the Babes record was when it basically divided the country, right? Because you had one side of the country that was like, wow, look at this guy, a black man, black athlete that's about to sort of make history. And you had the other side of the country that wanted to protect you know, a white baseball player, their legend, Babe Ruth. They want to protect that with everything they had. And it really divided things. It was a very divisive time in America already. It divided things even more. And the result of it was that you had Hank Aaron, who was up in the batter's box, you know, every game, receiving death threats from the stadium, people throwing things at him. I mean, it it, it was it was it was absolutely ruthless. Um, you know, there there are stories of players that wouldn't go out on the field his own teammates because they were scared of what was going to happen. Um, But he still went out there every time. And one of the ways that he talks about sort of having a chance to do that is this ability to come back to his own home base, right? Come back to his own sort of internal... Like internal touchstone. And I think that that's something that's really accessible to all of us. Or, For example, I have found myself in situations and in meetings where I've wanted to react, but I kind of catch myself in that moment. I say, if I react right now, I know that I'm probably going to say something that I'm going to regret, right? What I do, it's really simple. It's going to sound overly simple, but I simply just put my hand on my chest, put my hand on my chest, give myself a couple of pats, right? It's something to do. It's something just to kind of reset me, right? And then I react, right? And I'm not saying that every time I do that, I react poetically or react like, you know, like a monk. But what I'm saying is that it doesn't it it prevents me from having the emotion that I feel in that moment be purely in the driver's seat. Instead, I can actually have it take a back seat and I can actually steer the car a little bit in the direction that I want it to be. It's not like the emotion is gone, it's not like I don't feel anger, it's not like I don't feel frustration, but it's not driving the car the way that it was before I just gave myself a simple pat on the back. For you, or for anybody who's listening right now, find your touchstone, whatever that is, you know, it it can, it can literally be paying attention to the breath at the tip of your nose. You might have like a, you might, you might have some fun with it. You might literally put your hands, stroke your hands through your hair in that moment of frustration. Right. But something to break the moment, something to break that instant reactivity, right? Because it's in the instant reactivity where we feel the regret it's in that instant reactivity that we say things that we wish we could have taken back. It's when we make decisions that ultimately were the wrong things. It's when we sort of kick ourselves for saying, oh, man, why did I, why did I respond to that email so quickly when I could have just taken a moment? There was no, urge, no real urgency to it. I could have taken a moment. I could have taken a breath. So, again, having some practice. And I I recommend that it be physical in some way because physical has a way of really taking you out of your head. And again, it doesn't have to be something that everybody notices. It can literally just be, you know, really discreetly patting yourself on the chest, stroking your hand through your hair, taking a breath.
0: That is such good advice. I I actually do something like that when I was trying to, uh, I was quitting a bad habit and uh, and I was the, the, the advice somebody gave to me is whenever you wanted to, to, to do that thing, just, you know, put your hand on your chest mm. and breathe in and then mm. it goes away. So anything that it, you were doing exactly what you said, which you're getting out of your head, you're it's mindfulness, really. It's like a, it's like a cheat sheet for mindfulness and you're pulling yourself back into the physical world where, you know, your, your corporal body. So that is, that is so it's so simple but like again it's like it doesn't have to be hard.
1: <laughs> yeah and and I think and I think it is and it is simple and I think the thing is that like I think the reason that we sometimes think it's hard is because we've been conditioned to move so quickly. Mm. Right? I, mean, I think like I think like you know everything is instant now and I think with you know ChatGPT and everything related to it it's it's going to make things feel like you need to move even faster, right? There's this pressure that we have to respond to every text quickly. We have to respond to every email quickly. We have to respond to every Slack message quickly. And I I, I think that like, I mean, I think speed is actually becoming the most overrated quality. Yes. Especially inside business, right? Especially inside companies. It's like, we want to move quicker, we want to move quicker. Do you? Because if I sort of peel back the layers and I look at some of the areas where you guys feel like you wish you would have done things differently, a lot of it is because you were rushing, right? And a lot of it was because you were rushing, you were asking the people around you to rush. If I look at some of the systemic problems inside your company, which is around sort of like people burning out and getting exhausted, oftentimes it's because they're just moving so quickly and there's no room to breathe. And the question. The question is why? Like, what? I mean, of course, you want to make progress, and it's not to say that you shouldn't. But is all this stuff like actually so urgent that you feel the need to want to respond immediately at the risk of, you know, moving maybe potentially in a direction that actually isn't healthy for the company or its people? Seems like the wrong trade-off to make. And and I think that the wisdom isn't in saying, let's slow everything down. The wisdom is in putting some decision making power at the beginning of like, is this truly urgent? Like truly is it something that I need to respond to right away? Uh, do I need to put myself through that little stress, that little stress bubble or that stressful moment? Or is it the kind of thing that I don't need to? Like if my kids are running out into the street, fuck, I need to go get them. Like, I mean, that's that's a moment, right? act urgently. But I think that those moments are actually few and far between.
0: Having power over your own response is something that, it is true what you're saying. I remember a friend of mine, he emailed Reed Hoffman out of the blue. He was introduced by somebody, and Reed wrote him right back. And his comment was, it's amazing how the most successful people in the world always email you right back. And I was like, wow, I should really adopt that practice. Then, years later, I turned off all notifications. Like, I don't see a lot of, it's like kind of funny. I, I had a period of time where I didn't realize by phone, like I wasn't getting any phone calls. You know what happened? Nothing. <laughs> I, I was just as happy i was just as successful everything was great and a lot of things resolve themselves it's like by the time you answer the email six hours later the person has resolved it because you know your email is somebody else's to-do list for you and so i have become a believer that folks who are the most productive and and sort of that have the most agency over their time don't do that checklist for other people. They simply, you know, they they I, you know, separate the ur- urgent things I will do. Everything else, I will file it away and deal with it once or twice a day. And it has been a game changer for me. So I think it's absolutely right. That fallacy, it was, you know, it it of course, if you respond right away, it's great for the businesses that are providing the service. It's great for Slack and all the others because their engagement goes up. It's so bad for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's totally right, man. And by the way, I've I've emailed Reed and I've I've waited a couple of weeks, you know, and and and, and and so I'm not I'm not I'm not as high up in the priority list as your friend. But but here's the thing, like he's responsive, and yeah. that ultimately I think what makes him a maybe he changes leader. ways. Maybe Reed <laughs> could,
0: be. could be. I, I got to think a guy like Reed Hoffman one day wakes up and he's like, "What am I doing here? Right? Like <laughs> I'm really successful." I am like, I have all the things and yet I'm responding to strangers' emails in thirty seconds. Like maybe it's time. And that was right before you emailed him.
1: <laughs> exactly. He's like, I'm I'm done with this. <laughs> I, I think responsiveness is such a, like an admirable quality. You know, mm. like no one likes being ghosted and no one likes being sort of just like not acknowledged. And I think like for somebody like you, for somebody like Reed to sort of take the time to respond to people, even if it's not someone that you intend to to work with, I think is a really special thing, you know? Yeah.
0: Um, but instant responsiveness, I think yeah. is over, it's overrated. I agree. And I think you you nailed it. I always get back to people. I always, always do. And that is because I know what it's like to be ignored and I, it drives me absolutely crazy. So I always respond, but I don't, do it right away, or I try not to, unless it's, you know, if Reed emailed me. Oh, I'd wait a little so he doesn't think that I'm thirsty, <laughs> but then I'd email him back. Uh I want to do so. We have a new segment on the show, Sunil, that I that I was inspired by. The founders of the Skim came on and they were so awesome yeah. oh. that we did a little we did a little new thing. I call the lightning round. And what I do here is I only allow you a one word response either yes, no, mm-hmm. or the thing. Do you want to play mm-hmm. the game? Sure, let's okay. play it. It's, it's very simple. It's like, it's going to be four questions. Lightning round. Okay, number one, AI, overrated or underrated? Overrated. Okay, I agree. Bitcoin, overrated or underrated? Overrated. Agree. Well, you and I are so aligned. Uh, this is not a test to see if we can be friends, but I do like this. Favorite <laughs> book? The Alchemist, Paulo Coelho. I like that, nice. Final question. And this is a spicy one. So, everybody, just uh, back up. Uh, If if you have a free minute, Google Sunil and go watch. He ran for Congress and he made the best congressional ad I've ever seen. It is. I still believe that. I love your ad. I thought I I didn't know you at the time. And I was like, this guy. Uh, So, the question is will you run for office again? I doubt it. No,
1: but I, I, I will be involved. I, I, um, I'm gonna be with you, doing all the things that I know you do, Patrick. I'm gonna mm-hmm. be fighting the good fight. But I've got a couple of kids, and and I don't, I don't think at least until they they are out of the house, I will run again.
0: All right, so it's not a no, everybody.
1: I guess, I guess we just made some news. Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> all right, everybody, the book is called Everyday Dharma. You can find out more and connect with Sunil at sunilgupta.com. Also, you can find him on LinkedIn, on YouTube at sunil underscore Gupta, on Instagram at sunilgupta, and on Twitter at sunil. Sunil Gupta, Everyday Dharma, thank you so much for being here. Patrick, this is a blast. As always, FOMO.